Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm George Miller, a London-based junior doctor. A year has passed now since I first sat down with Dr Anne Lim to discuss her remarkable career in public service. There's no doubt that she's been an inspiring leader, one who's touched the lives of thousands, working at the heart of government to enrich the lives of younger generations. At the time, I was on the cusp of becoming a doctor myself, and curious to learn about the challenges she encountered, how she achieved it all, and what she learned along the way. The following is an excerpt from that meeting. How did you approach the transition from teacher to civil servant and government advisor? Um, I've been very lucky, really, to have started life as a, a teacher, which I think is a form of leadership, really. You have a class in front of you and you're very much a role model for the pupils that you um, are uh, there to, to try and encourage to learn. And uh, I think I took those leadership lessons, I suppose uh, you might call them, as a, a teacher into a formal leadership role when I ran a college as a college principal and then when I was responsible uh, as a, a public servant, as a civil servant, for running major e-learning programmes um, across uh, England, Wales and, and Northern Ireland. And uh, I think you make the transitions by asking yourselves, yourself the question, um, what did I do wrong? <laughs> and what did I learn from what I've done wrong? Um, uh, and make sure that when you get into a, a new role, you don't repeat the mistakes. Uh, for me, there's a, a lot about leadership, which is to do with exposing yourself to some of the, the failures and making the mistakes, but then learning from the mistakes. And that, I think, assists the transition if you go into, into very different roles. What advice would you offer to those at the beginning of their leadership careers? I'm a bit loath as an older person to give advice to young people about leadership. But with that caveat, let me say this, and it's something I've learned from coaching and mentoring uh, young leaders. Uh, and I can give an example as well of what I'm going to say. I, I do think that if you're intent from a very early age with an ambition to be a leader, you are more likely to succeed than if you let life happen to you, as it were. Now, I don't mean you have to um, have a burning ambition to be Prime Minister from the age of uh, five, uh, necessarily, but I think you will find that those in the most senior leadership roles do at a fairly early age determine that they want to do it. So my advice would be a kind of clarity of purpose um, and a determination that goes with that to seek the, the most senior leadership positions is really quite important. And why do I say that? Because actually you have to prepare yourself to be a leader. You have to prepare yourself emotionally and psychologically. And if actually you find yourself in a leadership position and you've not done that preparation, I think you can um, find it much, much more difficult than if you have been somehow mentally preparing you for that. And this is the example I give. It's, um, it's a very high-level political one, but there's absolutely no doubt about it that the current Prime Minister in the United Kingdom, Theresa May, wanted to be the first woman Prime Minister. In fact, Margaret Thatcher made it before her, but she harboured that ambition uh, from her schoolgirl days. I mean, she's on record as having said it. Um, and she has carefully stuck to that 
vision and taken opportunities and used chances that she's been given uh, to get herself into that position, which probably, I mean, she's only nine months in, uh, but 12 months ago, people wouldn't necessarily have put a bet on her becoming the leader of the Tory party and then the prime minister because there were other very big names like Boris Johnson, like George Osborne, clearly. And even at that stage, we didn't know David Cameron was going. So sorry, I digress, but I use her as an example of somebody who's very clearly been preparing herself and therefore I think is in a, whatever your politics, and this isn't a political comment, it's about the emotional stability uh, to withstand the stress of the most senior position. By contrast, uh, Ed Miliband, again, not making a party political point, but Ed Miliband went head to head with his brother um, and by the narrowest of majorities became leader of the Labour Party. He was not, as the younger brother, um, remotely prepared for that leadership role. He grew into it. Um, uh, his brother, however, as the older of the two, uh, politically ambitious, rather like Theresa May from a very early age, had always expected it would happen. And he was psychologically in a much better place to do it. And of course, many commentators say he would have made a better job of it. Now, I'm not comparing those two again, either politically or in any other way. I'm just saying, think about that in terms of the, um, w w the, w the way in which when you get into a leadership role, you are fully emotionally, psychologically uh, prepared uh, to take it on. What obstacles did you encounter while setting up the government's flagship e-learning service, LearnDirect? Well, it was a fascinating role to take on because you've got to wind back to um, a Labour government of 97 and a big ambitious policy agenda to change education. And um, don't forget, we weren't all plugged into the internet then. Um, and uh, the Labour government decided that they would expand learning for all by actually not making it available um, uh, through the traditional open and distance learning methods, but by uh, making it available through computers and online, which people forget, uh, as I say, when internet wasn't so pervasive, you couldn't actually, uh, um, you had to dial up, you know, to get on the internet. You, you didn't have broadband with the kind of speeds we've got now. So to make innovative learning materials available through e-learning was quite a, a bold step. And the idea of Learn Direct came out of a, a, an, an idea that was meant to be the, the sort of new Labour government's revamp of the open university. Um, it was a, a university for industry. It was a university for all. But we changed the, the brand name to Learn Direct. So uh, it, it, it had a lot of public money put into it. There was a lot of development of the technology and a lot of writing of quite innovative and, and creative new materials for literacy and for numeracy because they were, as they are still, big issues in terms of levels of, of learning. But the idea that the medium of the learning would be um, through individual learning online uh, was, uh, was, was quite revolutionary at the time. Um, and in terms of that being a mass engagement um, me mechanism, because the numbers of people doing uh, e-learning courses uh, made available through government programmes was a, was a very new idea at the time. Challenging to lead, I have to say, but exciting. Having worked in Tony Blair's digital inclusion panel, which new areas of innovation would you consider the most exciting? 
Well, I mean, digital, uh, the digital um, innovation that's going on nowadays compared to, well, effectively 20 years ago is quite astonishing, actually. And I think what amazes me most about things uh, is, A, the uh, accelerated pace of change. You know, things happen very, very, very quickly. And because of the pervasive use of the internet uh, now, the imaginative uh, uses, um, I suppose in terms of social media, I'm thinking particularly, uh, couldn't have been dreamt of, even, even back at the turn of the um, millennium, actually, I don't think. So I think what most as, as strikes me as somebody who is not a digital uh, native, as it were, you know, obviously my age, I've, I'm a digital immigrant, I've had to, to learn things um, as, as other people in their mid-60s like me have had to do or not do in some cases. Um, I, I think the way in which Google, Uber, just two examples, are part of young people's experience and they're, they're almost born with a an iPhone in their hands, as it were, um, is is what strikes me uh, the the most: the pace of that and the innovation that's available through the kind of application and uses uh, that uh, that technology provides. How have you judged where best to allocate your time? Well, uh, when I uh, first started my career, as it were. I really loved what I did. I, I learned to speak French and became a French teacher, which for me was, um, given my background, quite an amazing and, and wonderful thing, really. It was, it was exposure to a different language and a different culture and a different literature. And I loved teaching that. And my principal maxim, if you like, was do what you love. Um, because if you do what you love, you'll transmit that to um, to those around you. Um, so I put my energies behind uh, things that really mattered and inspired me and, and gave me some reward. And I suppose that is what I use now as a guiding principle in terms of how I allocate my time. And I've probably uh, done that throughout my career as well, which is if, if, you, if you do what you love, um, you will, um, uh, uh, and you do it in an authentic way, you will transmit that uh, to others, and you won't really worry about quite how much time it is taking uh, you to, to do things. Um, that said, now I have a more of a portfolio career. I don't have a single focus as a career. I choose to put my energy and time uh, into things where I think I can make most difference, um, use the skills I've got sensibly and and wisely so for example i know having been a chief executive um, i'm now quite good working with other chief execs because i've been in their shoes and i can not i don't want to do their job anymore but i can give them advice i can be a somebody that they can um, you know come and talk to safely and confidentially so as a chair of a board working with a chief exec I, I think I can give good time without um, uh, uh, taking over the, the executive role of a chief exec so I choose to do things where I'm playing to my strengths and um, I'm actually uh, supporting causes or uh, being involved in in work 
that kind of makes a difference and gives me some sort of satisfaction. So it's quite easy to allocate your time because I wouldn't take on something which um, I felt was not going to make a difference, was not going to contribute to um, the development of people or the enhancement of a better society or uh, doing a worthwhile uh, role in, in, in society. I just, I just, or indeed taking part in something that um, di didn't play to my strengths even, you know. I, life's too short really to spend your time, <laughs> uh, you know, doing things that are not really um, adding uh, to, to, the, to the sum total of, of, um, of human experience. What would you consider the long-term vision of what you've been hoping to achieve in your career? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, um, I do quite a bit of coaching uh, now, and I have done over the last 10 years, and I always say to uh, younger people I'm coaching, what do you want to do ultimately you know what's your ultimate vision of where you want to where you want to be because it's a good idea to have an idea of where you want to get to not in the current job or even in the next job but you know the one after that um, because if you've got that vision you will then stand some chance of of getting there it's a bit like what i was saying about leadership and giving the illustration of people who thought i really really want to do that job um, it's interesting to, when I apply that to myself because truthfully for the first 10 years of my life I didn't say to myself oh I want to be a, a further education college principal I was very content to be a, a teacher a French teacher and then to become a head of department and then when I did some management and leadership training I thought well I probably could be um, quite a good organizer which is what I thought of as leadership you know um, uh, and I didn't have that burning ambition and vision uh, which said that's absolutely what I want, want to do. So even though I'm telling people I coach now that that's what you should have, I, I, I confess I didn't have that um, for myself. However, once I got into that leadership role, I did begin to, to, to think about, well, what do you want to do with, with this um, position and power and energy you, you've, uh, you've got. Um, in terms of having a vision now at my age about what I want to do, I, I, I suppose, and it sounds rather boring and quite geeky, but I suppose what I really want to do is be a very good chair of a board, um, be very good on corporate governance uh, and be very uh, good in terms of mentoring and supporting uh, uh, the, the, and, and running uh, the boards of businesses or of charities because I, I, I think that there is a whole leadership area to do with good governance that probably needs more attention both in the charity sector and in the corporate world and in the health service world and in the public sector generally that we don't pay enough attention to. Um, uh, so I hope the leadership experience and skills I've learned now can be translated at least over the next decade because I don't intend to stop working or, or giving back. I mean, I'm not necessarily working to earn money, but um, I would like to feel that there's a leadership role for, for very good governance. Let me give you a very quick example in the charity sector. Look what happened to the charity kids company where there was poor governance really and a rather charismatic, effective um, in many ways, uh, uh, leader in Camilla Batmangela. 
uh, doing some good work, but where there was a failure, collective failure of leadership to provide the kind of governance that was needed for that organisation. Um, we don't want repeats of that. So um, in big public sector organisations, in hospitals, in NHS trusts, in, uh, in, in charities, in schools, in universities, you need good corporate governance. Um, and, and so my vision really is to improve the corporate governance of, uh, uh, of, of, of charities and public sector. Which area have you found you've been able to achieve the most in? What are you most proud of? Well, I know what I'm most proud of in terms of what I've achieved. Um, and that's really been every single act of uh, kindness or support that at the time for me is not taken very much, but has clearly been meaningful for another person. When that's been then um, somehow transmitted back to me because somebody has written to me to say, I remember when you, X, Y, and Z, you know. Um, so the first time I got that was, was when uh, somebody I taught, uh, taught French to, actually got a French degree and they wrote to me and, and, and thanked me for the support I'd given them just as a teacher. Um, but those, those little times when things come back to you and you realize the impact you have had on somebody else and they've taken the time to tell you that, that therefore you really have evidence that you've made a difference and that that that, uh, that something you have done for the best possible reasons at the time has really had uh, some meaning for another uh, I'm most sort of proud of that and um, that's epitomized for me by the fact that when I set up a charity almost 20 years ago to help uh, students, particularly very disadvantaged students from the further education colleges I'd been working in who were wanting to get onto university uh, and were being inhibited from doing that because the fees were too much because we were just starting to introduce fees at that time or because they just didn't have the means and support to, um, uh, to, to help their maintenance at university. When I set up a charity that gave bursaries uh, to, to, to students um, to, to help them progress from FE in, into uh, university and those students then graduated and those students um, have, have got into very senior positions across the public and private sectors now and are themselves wanting to help others and volunteer for our charity as mentors and uh, as, as um, uh, they give work experience placements. When they want to give back, then I, I know that the little difference we made to them by giving them a bit of a bursary at a time when their lives were really quite tricky um, has been sufficient for them to uh, alter their behaviour and, and to continue that sort of virtuous circle, if you like. So I'm most proud of having made a difference to um, a huge amount of people in, uh, uh, in, in all walks of life, but particularly in education and, and, and particularly those students who I've helped through my charity, the Helena Kennedy Foundation. And what inspired you to found the Helena Kennedy Foundation? How did you formulate the idea and then bring it to fruition? Um, well, as it was 20 years ago uh, uh, to, to the year, July 1997, when uh, then Helena Kennedy QC, now Baroness Kennedy, um, produced a report called Learning Works. And she did a, an investigation 
into uh, the students in the further education sector who were bright and able to go on to university but were disadvantaged, were stopped in some way because there were barriers to them uh, getting through into the university world. And when that report was published, I had been part of the um, investigation that she'd undertaken and the report was published. Labour government came to power and uh, at the same time as the publication of her, of her report, the Labour government decided that they would impose what they called upfront tuition fees of £1,000 for students going into university, which was a ridiculous additional barrier to students who had already found it very difficult. So what inspired me was anger, really. It was anger as a Labour government that had just come into power, that were clearly committed to wanting to support lifelong learning, they called it, David Blunkett called it. But then they were asking students who, who were in the most disadvantaged anyway uh, to, to, to pay these fees up front. And it was deeply discouraging. So I thought, well, we've got to get them over that threshold. We'll have to give them bursaries of £1,000. And because Helena had written the report that said there's great students out there that we're just missing because we're only concentrating on a very narrow few, the privileged few who can go to the best schools and get on, go to university. Remember, there was still probably only about five or six percent of people going to university then. I mean, it's increased to 50 percent now, but um, uh, there were fewer 20 years ago, fewer people going to university. But the very ones that would benefit the most were the, the ones who were... Um, least likely to get there because of these policies. So in honour of Helena's report, I wrote to her and I said, I want to start a charity, but I'd like it to bear your name so that your report uh, lives on in some way. And she said, well, come and meet me um, and have a chat about it. And I did, and she said, yes, you can have my name, which I think is a, a great gift. Um, I said, I don't want any money from you. I'll raise the money from somewhere, but I would like to keep your your report going and, uh, uh, and honour uh, your, your work. Uh, and she freely gave that, that gift of her name. She is our president. She does give the House of Lords each year for our students to come and celebrate in. Uh, and uh, it, it was very inspiring to meet somebody who, like me, cared enough about encouraging a next generation of, of students and particularly some of the most disadvantaged students in society. So that's how it was set up and um, we've kept it going. We've helped over 2,000 students now to get, and of course, bursaries have now become much more a feature of things because obviously uh, university tuition fees have in, in a big way have been introduced during that time. But we still give some of the most vulnerable in society uh, um, a, a financial leg up at a time when they need it. But as importantly, and all the students say this, we give them the confidence, we give them a belief in themselves, and we inspire in them to volunteer, uh, um, as I say, which is um, a, real, a real benefit in, in terms of the social impact that we make on those people. And to what extent has your experience working on independent advisory government panels differed depending on the party in power? It's so fascinating working with uh, different political parties. And in my lifetime, I've worked with Tory governments, uh, majority Tory governments, um, with a majority Labour government for three terms from 97, a coalition government, there wasn't a civil servant under that period, but I've um, chaired a local enterprise partnership and worked very closely with the coalition government from 2010 to 15, and now back to a Tory majority uh, government. Um, 
The machinery of government doesn't vary that much. I mean, that's the traditional British civil service at its best, although it's changed during that time and uh, it's certainly diversified in many ways in terms of uh, gender equality, race equality and, uh, and class equality. You know, the, 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 the British civil service is a, is a much more, thank goodness, diverse place now. But the way it works is, is still fundamentally the same with, with, with uh, you know, complete independence regardless of the uh, policies of the, uh, of the government um, of, of the day. Uh, so treating people without fear or favour I think is, is a, a very good maxim. Um, uh, but um, the thing I've learned most is regardless of the political party, we keep reinventing the wheel. We keep going back and doing things that have been done by other governments <laughs> and sometimes repeating the same mistakes. And of course, if you're politicians, you're, 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 um, what, would, what would you call it really? I suppose it's the, about the collective memory of what's gone on before you. Um, politicians don't really regard that. They like to do new and different things um, and they don't learn from what's gone on in the past. They want to come in with a new initiative. So I, I think the biggest thing I learned is that uh, regardless of political party, what you might call initiative-itis prevails. Labour want to do something new and different. Actually, the Tories probably did did some of it some time ago. The Tories now in are wanting to do things uh, that actually were were in many cases um, uh, uh, tried, particularly in educational policy, were tried by um, previous Labour Labour governments. Universal Career Service uh, being a being an example of something they're pursuing at the moment, and they were tried and then dropped. Um, I suppose this is just the nature of transformation and change. You know, you go round it uh, again and again, and each time you come round it, it might change slightly, but essentially it's the it's the sort of same idea. Um, but power, whoever is in power, does the same things. I think to the human psyche. Um, and, and it's very difficult to resist that, and regardless of your political colour. I mean, if you were to compare Tony Blair and David Cameron, um, you know, they'd probably have quite different political views in many respects, or at least they represent two different political parties. But actually, you have a former prime minister there that took us into a war in Iraq that, um, you know, discredited him, really, despite his other legacy. And you have uh, David Cameron, who was taking us into a referendum uh, for political reasons that we don't yet know the full consequences of. And that there's something about the nature uh, of, of, the, of the political um, uh, dimension and, the, and what it can potentially do to your psyche as a, a human being, particularly in the, those very, very senior leadership uh, positions, which I think is, um, uh, uh, provides a great lesson in leadership for those of us who don't reach the, those heights, you know. I think it possible that you may be wrong. Uh, be advised by as many people, even though ultimately you have to take the big decisions. But don't believe, ever believe your own propaganda. Because once you start to believe in your own ability to persuade other people, um, you're probably going uh, the way of hubris. And I think in the two examples I've given, so regardless of political party, 
both of those men, who I think are decent and good men, actually, um, uh, as human beings. But they, there was something about that political leadership role that they got themselves into that ultimately has, has not been particularly good for, for, for them in, in terms of the decisions that have been made. What were your main objectives whilst advising overseas governments? Well, uh, when Learn Direct was set up, um, I think the government of the day in 1997 didn't realise just quite how far ahead they were in terms of believing that of the power of the internet to change the experience of, of citizens. So, um, as well as Learn Direct, we, we then set up direct, what's become DirectGov or gov.uk, i.e accessing ordinary uh, services like getting a new driving license or taxing your car or something online. So the availability of all of those uh, services online was unthinkable really at the time, but the government thought that the internet can help that happen. And as a government, we were, well, when I stopped working for, for as a civil servant in 2005, the, the potential of that was, was evident and beginning to be really uh, clear in the UK but many other governments overseas were not so far advanced at all in terms of their thinking in terms of using the internet I suppose democratically to make uh, uh, services available uh, online to to uh, to their citizens so from uh, places like um, uh, Kuala Lumpur you know in, in the in the Far East to uh, uh, to European uh, uh, countries that weren't so advanced as, as us like Spain it was quite interesting to be invited into those governments to say well well why did you set up Learn Direct like that and how are you making these services available and how much does it cost and what is DirectGov going to do? Um, and people genuinely did want to learn at that stage from what the UK government um, had, had done. And there was a, a period, particularly from about, I suppose, 2005 to 2010, when I think we were, were quite in the vanguard of of, of the establishment of um, online citizen services. Now it's become, over the last seven years, it's become much more all-pervasive because the, the internet, as we were saying earlier, and, and digital advancement has, has, has developed across the globe. But we had a small window when we were really quite a, ahead. Um, and I just want to, to take it back to the fact of 97 and then 2000 when when the uh, then Blair government were, were getting into technology, um, uh, they didn't really know quite what it would mean in, 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 in terms of the way it could transform things. But they did have a vision that we ought to go with it. Um, and I, I, I think that's probably not always as um, acknowledged as it, as it should be and, 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 and could be. People have forgotten about it very easily. To what degree has space been made for values, beliefs and faiths? I myself, um, uh, what I would describe as um, a, a person who has a strong sense of uh, values, I'm values driven, um, and I do in fact have a faith. Um, in my case, I'm a, I'm a Quaker. So I measure what I do really by those values and by checking out the kind of framework of faith that, that, that I have. I was very lucky that I um, uh, uh, chaired a committee of inquiry into whether uh, faith and values and ethics mattered to young people in the further education sector. 
uh, and um, against all the received wisdom which said, oh, young people aren't uh, people of faith, they aren't really values driven, they only care about themselves, um, uh, they certainly don't want to do religion, and I'm talking about religions in its widest sense, whether it was Islam, Christianity, Judaism, whatever. Um, uh, when we listened to what young people said mattered to them, uh, they said, actually, we do need to understand why people are different. We do value doing things other than the purely utilitarian. We do like discussing uh, what uh, makes people tick and why different things make pe different people tick and what motivates people to have a belief and have a faith. And so I did this inquiry which was called Making Space for Faith and Belief. Um, and, and actually when you gave people the space to talk about those things, um, they came to the space and, and shared and learnt in a very productive uh, way. Um, do I think that people do make enough space for that in their lives and in education and in the, the learning and skills sector generally, whether it's at university or in schools or in colleges? Uh, probably not, because the national curriculum squeezes that out. Um, the desire for qualifications, the desire for training, um, which is all very, very important, means that we n never have enough time really just to stop and reflect. And yet, actually, I think if you look at some really good practice that's going on in primary schools now, where children um, who are dealing with very chaotic lives, uh, very fast-paced pace of life, as it were, fast-moving pace of life, um, where they're bombarded with, with uh, lots of experience and activity and choice and goodness knows what, if they're given some time just to reflect, uh, so you don't have to call it spiritual time, it doesn't have to be religious time, but some time for mindfulness, which is the current phrase, but some time just to think about things and to stop and listen uh, and look at things in a very different way. That is actually beneficial to well-being and to mental health. So um, I don't think enough time is made, I don't think enough space and time is made for consideration of those aspects of well-being. But I think in good educational practice, uh, where they do do that, you will find it has benefits.